Well, during the Summer Olympics in 1992, I was 13 years old, which was just the right age to be thoroughly impressed by the Dream Team. Now, some of you, if you were maybe around that age, you remember the Dream Team. If you're older than that, you might recollect. If you're not old enough, you've maybe heard of the Dream Team, that original Dream Team. That Olympics, 1992, was the first to allow players from the NBA to participate in the men's basketball part of that Olympics, which resulted in that year's United States men's Olympic basketball team being completely stacked. I think that used to be a phrase. I don't know if that still is, but maybe you know what that means. They were given that nickname of the Dream Team, and they lived up to it. Uh, many have called that team the greatest sports team ever assembled. It was probably a many teenage boys' dream come true. I remember those uh, playground discussions of what if you could put all the best athletes in one sport on the same team. That would be awesome. And that's what they did. They got all of my favorites, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Larry Bird, all on the same team, plus most of the other most well-known basketball players of the time, and they dominated that Olympics. They won all of their games by an average of about 44 points and easily won the gold medal. And that's how you do it if you want to win. If you are able and you want to be serious about making something come out the right way that you want it to, that's how you do it. If someone wants to form a team, in whatever area it is you're talking about, it was sports, business, entertainment, whatever it may be, if you want it to go well, if you want to win, you gather the most qualified, the most talented, the most well-known in that field, and you surround yourself with winners. And even if it's a situation where it's something that maybe you're not so good at, if you surround yourself with people who are, they'll make you look good. It's if you're making a team, you want to find the best that you can. And so we're in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is in the process of starting something new. Now this thing that he is, is, is starting, we're seeing the beginnings of, is intended to be a movement that will become global. This is big. This is something that is to be earth-shaking. And it's a matter of life or death. But even more than that, this is about the eternal destination of people's souls. Now, if you were in charge of putting together a team that was to be the foundation of that movement, what kind of people do you think you'd be looking for? Well, if it had been up to us, if we were the ones forming the team, we probably would have done it very differently than Jesus did. We probably would have been more likely to choose the ones that Jesus purposely did not choose. If the foundation of this movement 
was to be of the Jews, which it was, who among the Jews would make your list of most likely candidates to be the team to start a global movement? Well, probably would be some with notoriety. Uh, some of those who are already in positions of leadership because they have experience. They may be in a, a position where they already know other people of, of power and influence. They probably have means of obtaining money. And since this was something that largely involves a spiritual aspect, going to the temple in Jerusalem. And that, that seems logical. That'd be the place to start, to find some good leaders, to be the ones to do something that's going to be big. You could also choose from among those more well-known teachers of the law, like the scribes and the Pharisees. And if we wanted to form a dream team of all these spiritual elites, if we wanted powerful and influential people from among the Jews, so we could be sure that we would win, those would be some of the best options if we were looking at this from a worldly, fleshly perspective. What do we know about the priests at the temple in Jerusalem? What do we know about the high priests that we, we come across in Scripture? I believe we're mostly Sadducees. What do we know about the scribes and the Pharisees from Scripture? What do we know about them, why they didn't make Jesus's list of likely candidates. Well, to answer that, we just have to look at the state of Judaism in that day. The religion that they were heads of and teachers of was a mess. The religious leaders of Israel had failed at the one job that they were supposed to do. They had misinterpreted and misapplied the law of Moses. Instead of leading the people of Israel and the nations around them to the one true God of heaven, they were misleading people and pushing them away from God. Instead of teaching the people to put their trust in the promised Messiah who was to come for the forgiveness of their sins, they led the people to trust in their own works to earn God's favor and God's forgiveness. So Jesus said of these same people. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now that is not the kind of influence that Jesus wanted for his team. In the verse right after that, there in Matthew 23, Jesus called those Scribes and Pharisees, blind guides. They're telling people which way to go when they didn't know which way to go themselves. On top of that, they added their own opinions, their own ideas to God's word, and they judged people based on their opinions more strictly than they did even on what God had actually said in his word. We'll eventually get here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is answering the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says in Mark 7, verses 6 through 8, 
Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the traditions of men. That's what Jesus said of some of the people that most would assume to be the most obvious and logical choice of leaders that someone would want if you want to win. But Jesus said they're hypocrites. Jesus said they were blind. He said they were leading people to hell. And in turn, they hated Jesus. There's no way they would be on this team that Jesus was forming. Hey, let, let's ask this. Why did Jesus even need a team? If, if Jesus is God, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, why did he need anyone's help at all? Well, it's because this was his plan. He could have done it differently, but this was his plan. And Jesus came to this earth knowing that he came to die. And things have been set in motion already. We've seen it in Mark. We know it's going to happen. The passage we looked at last week um, showed us that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was very popular. A lot of people liked him. At least the average people of Israel, some of the surrounding areas. They liked him a lot. But this popularity is fickle. They like Jesus because of the gracious things he's been doing for them. Uh, he healed their diseases. He's been casting out demons that were troubling people. At times he gave them free food. As long as that's what Jesus was doing, they liked him. But when it came to the message he preached, the reason he came, and telling people that they need to repent, that they're going the wrong way, They've got their, their trust in the wrong place. They need to turn around. This thing that they've been believing and doing for centuries has been wrong. Now he's meddling. And people don't like that so much. You've got all those powerful and influential religious leaders of Israel. And they've all already, at this point where we are in Mark, they've decided they hate Jesus. And two weeks ago, we saw a coalition of scribes, Pharisees, and Herodians who have begun to make plans for how they're going to kill Jesus. Mark doesn't deal with this, but we learned through the Gospel of John that before this time in Galilee that we've been seeing in Mark, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. And he had already cleansed the temple the first time. Which made it clear that he thought the religious establishment in Jerusalem was corrupt. They were wrong for how they were operating in the temple. So Jesus has no friends at the temple. And Jesus was going to die. But his plan, knowing that that was coming... His plan was to gather up a team and train them to carry on the work of spreading the gospel when he was gone. So how would he gather this dream team 
for such an important task. Well, Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says, And he went up on the mountain. That's, that's where we start. The first thing Jesus did was to get away from the crowd. The last passage we looked at, uh, he was being pressed on, about to be trampled by the crowds that just, just wanted to be with him, wanted to touch him for the things he could do for them. He got away from that crowd. He went up on a mountain so he could spend some time alone. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but according to Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus went up on that mountain to pray, and he spent all night praying. That whole night, he was awake praying. And when we have important decisions to make, don't we think we're doing good if we've prayed about it for a solid five minutes? But think about what's happening here. And Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is so wise, and yet he spent an entire night praying before he chose the ones who would carry on this most important work. Now that should be instructive to us. If nothing else, we should learn from that. We need to pray more. When we have important decisions to make, important things going on in our lives, we need to pray more. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we? We need to pray. Well, that next morning, after Jesus has been awake all night praying about this, so we go on in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus summoned those who, whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. So after this, this night of prayer, Jesus selects his dream team. These were the ones he chose. These are the ones that he actually wanted to be on his team. It wasn't that there's nobody else left. It wasn't that he couldn't have gotten anyone else. These are actually the ones he wanted. Verse 14 says, and he appointed 12. Now there were other disciples. Uh, some of these disciples that Jesus chooses were already his disciples. But now this group of 12, this defined group of men, these 12, these weren't just disciples. They weren't just his followers. They weren't just his learners. But these are ones who he appointed for a specific task. Some translations have in there, and it's debated if this should be there or not, but that he appointed them as apostles. But this is the beginning of that. These men were to be the apostles. Jesus had a specific job, a very important job for these 12. Why 12? Could it have been 11? Would 13 have been better? Why not 25? He picked 12. Well, we've been seeing in Mark, Jesus did not come to build Judaism back better. That was not his campaign slogan. Jesus did not come to make the old covenant great again. That was not a campaign slogan of Jesus. He came to bring something new. It would be the new covenant in his blood. And by appointing 12 men, 
Jesus was appointing new leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. By Jesus appointing these 12 men, this was a rebuke to the current religious leaders that they had failed and they are being replaced. Now, Jesus told these men in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Isn't that interesting? These twelve men, that's why there were twelve. Because there were twelve thrones that they were going to be sitting on. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel in Jesus' kingdom. And this is why after Judas had defected and hung himself, the disciples, the eleven that were left, realized we need another one. And so they, they appointed Matthias. There's some debate if Matthias is the actual twelfth or if it should be Paul. Um, I don't know. We won't get into that this morning. But twelve is important. There had to be twelve. Now this also shows us some more the huge responsibility that's being placed on this team of men. These are the new leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The first they're going to be need, they're going to need to be prepared. So still in verse 14 of Mark chapter 3, he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. This is a very important first step for these 12. They needed to be with him. They had to have time to, to spend with Jesus, to be taught by him, to be trained by him, to carry on something that was so important. These men were not just instantly ready to go out as missionaries. It was going to take some time. They needed to be with Jesus. And that would be with the goal, spending this time with Jesus. We see in the rest of verse 14 and 15 that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So it's going to be their job to do the same things that Jesus had been doing. Preach the same message. Show the same power that this is coming from God. And that you need to hear this. You need to listen to this gospel that they're preaching. Now this is amazing when you consider the twelve that Jesus chose to be his dream team. If you could gather together all the best players on one team, wouldn't that be awesome? But think about who Jesus chose. After a whole night in prayer, with all the wisdom that Jesus has, this is who he chose. Verse 16. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now there are four times that these 12 men are listed in the Bible, when they're all listed together. Every time Simon or Peter comes first, John, James, and Andrew are always the next three, but not always in that order. Philip is always fifth. Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas are always sixth, seventh, and eighth, but not necessarily in that order. The other James is always ninth. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot 
are always 10 and 11, not necessarily in that order. Judas Iscariot is always last. Now that seems to indicate that there was some order or organization among these 12 disciples. There are three groups of four men. The first four that are always first four in the list are the ones who are closest to Jesus. And Peter was the leader among them. Philip was the leader of the next group. The other James led the third group. And Judas is always last and always identified as the betrayer. And that is how he will always be known. He's the betrayer. He's the one who turned against Jesus, turned him over to be crucified. What do we know about the other men? Let's start back with the first one, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And we know a fair amount about this one. Probably the first thing that comes to many people's minds about Simon is that he was, he was so impulsive. He spoke and he acted so often before he took time to think. His, his tongue outran his brains. His foot fit in his mouth very well. He was someone who was rebuked often for being so impulsive. And this was a leader and spokesman for the most influential team ever assembled. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus liked to give nicknames. Oh, my wife sometimes teases me about giving nicknames to our kids and our vehicles, and you know, things need nicknames. I, I feel that I'm in good company here because Jesus did it too. As several of these 12 men have nicknames. We come across in scripture. Okay, and we're talking about names here. People are thinking about names. Here's, here's some to consider. Um, you, when you name a child, you have to think about what nicknames they may have too. So keep that in mind. And you can think about some possibilities as we go through this list. But the nicknames show the closeness in this group of, of men. Sometimes the nicknames were, were given to tease. Sometimes they were given to remind them of who they should be. Other times they were given to remind them of who they shouldn't be. To Simon, Jesus gave the name Peter. Now Peter means rock or stone. It was something that is firm and steady, which is things that Simon was not when he joined this team. But it's something that Simon became. He became Peter. As he spent time with Jesus, as he was trained by Jesus and through the help of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus gave Peter this name because this is who he needed to become. Simon needed to become Peter. In verse 17 it says, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now we know a little bit about James and John from earlier in Mark. Uh, they were brothers, and they were in a fishing business along with Peter and Andrew. Uh, we know that James was the first follower of Christ to be martyred. His brother John outlived all the other twelve. 
We know that John came to be known as the Apostle of Love because of how often he wrote on the subject of love. But at the start, John and his brother James were not known that way at all. Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder, or in today's terms, Hotheads. If they were quick to anger, they were quick to want to call down wrath on anyone who crossed them. But every time Jesus or the other disciples would call out, Hey, hotheads, your lunch is ready. Or, Hey, hotheads, get in the boat. We can't wait forever. They would be reminded of the personality traits that they needed to overcome. Now, this nickname may have been given to them somewhat in jest, but it wasn't a compliment. This was something they needed to overcome. They needed to stop being hotheads. Learn to be loving. They did. Verse 18 says, And Andrew. Now, Andrew was Peter's brother. He was a fisherman. Um, Along with Peter and James and John, had a business together. Um, It was his house along with Peter where Jesus seems to have considered his home after moving to Capernaum. Most of what we see about Andrew in Scripture is him bringing people to Jesus. When there was a question, when something was uncertain, well, Peter would be quick with an answer without thinking about it. But Andrew's response was always, let's go see Jesus. Let's ask Jesus about this. You need to meet Jesus. The next one on the list, verse 18, is Philip. Now, Philip was not unlike the other 11, but he is singled out as being someone who's kind of slow on the uptake. When Jesus was talking about going to his father in John chapter 14, and how from then on, they would, all these disciples would, would know the father. Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Philip liked the sound of this. He wanted to know the Father. And so all Jesus needed to do was show us. Show us who it is. You know, pull out your wallet. Show us a picture. Then we'll know who he is. But Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the ability to know the Father through the Son should have been clear by then. It should have been able to understand this by that time. But Philip wasn't seeing it. Probably none of the others were either, but Philip was singled out. This is the team Jesus chose. Then we come to Bartholomew. Now, this is something of a nickname also. Uh, Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. So it's actually it's his father's name. He's son of Ptolemy. We know of him elsewhere in Scripture as Nathaniel. Now, Philip had a part in introducing Nathaniel to Jesus. Nathaniel wasn't impressed that Jesus came from Nazareth. And maybe he played for the next town's basketball team and they were rivals. Or, you know, Nazareth just wasn't that well-respected anyway, but Nathaniel was not impressed. This is the team Jesus chose. 
Verse 18 also includes Matthew. And we met Matthew earlier in Mark. There he was going by his other name, Levi. Then Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew worked for Rome. Matthew, because he was a tax collector for the Romans, as all of them did, scammed a lot of Jews out of their money. Now, if you were trying to put together a dream team of influential world shapers, Matthew is another one you would not have chosen. Neither would the next one be on your list. But Jesus also chose Thomas. And we find in the Gospel of John, Thomas has a nickname, Didymus, which means twin. I believe if I'm re remembering right, Thomas also means twin. So this guy is really a twin. Both of his names mean twin. So maybe he was a twin, or maybe he looked just like somebody else. Haven't I seen you before? Kind of guy. They call him the twin. We may more commonly know of him as Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas did have some doubts when it came to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to believe it until he saw it. But if we look honestly at that whole passage about Jesus' resurrection, all the rest of the disciples had doubts too. None of them believed until they saw. If we're being honest with ourselves, we would have been there too. We would have had doubts about something so amazing if we had just heard about it. So it's not really fair to be too hard on Thomas about his doubts. Uh, somebody said that you know, we're going to be spending eternity with Thomas in heaven. The first time you meet him, don't go up to him and call him Doubting Thomas. <laughs> um, he will return by calling you Doubting whatever your name is. Because <laughs> we all do. We all have. We've all been there. But Thomas did learn the truth. Thomas boldly carried the gospel, according to some pretty good sources, to India. And there he was martyred for preaching Christ. Next in the list is James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, if you scan back over to Mark chapter 2, verse 14... We see that Levi was also the son of an Alphaeus. Now, if that was the same Alphaeus, that would mean that James and Matthew were brothers. I don't think we know for sure, but it's possible. Every good group, if it's going to be worth anything, has to have at least two gems in it, right? <laughs> So how would you know which gym is being talked about? Well, at least one of them has to have a nickname, right? There were the Sons of Thunder, but that was James and John. Someone's talking about James. Which one is it? Well, this James was also known as James the Less or Little James. So maybe he was shorter. Maybe it was some other reason. But in that group, there was a big gym and a little gym. And other than that, we don't know much about this James. Then we have Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus was probably a nickname for the one who is elsewhere called Judas, not Iscariot. 
Okay, that tag is added on there in Scripture. This is Judas, not, in, not Iscariot. Okay, if you're looking for a baby name, consider that one. If you're thinking about Judas, his middle name needs to be not Iscariot. <laughs> now later on, this man would not want to be confused with that other Judas. People called him by his nickname, Thaddeus. as a meaning of something like heart child. We don't know much more about him, but we know he wasn't Iscariot. That's important. Last in verse 18 is Simon the Zealot. That descriptor that's added to his name differentiates him from the other Simon. It's kind of interesting how many duplicate names there were in this list. But it also tells us some things about him. This Simon had been a very proud Israelite. And he was part of a group of Israelites who hated the Romans so much that they would do whatever it took to try to drive them out. Now that was not limited to, but included murdering Roman soldiers. They came across one in the dark by himself and stick a dagger in their back. Now we don't know if Simon did that, but he may have. He was a part of that group. The Romans considered them to be terrorists. And apart from Christ, Matthew's life could have been in danger from Simon the Zealot. Because Matthew had worked with the Romans. He was a tax collector. Zealots hated them. But in Christ, they became brothers who could be servants of the gospel together. And unfortunately, we have to come to verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now We'll see more about this Judas later in Mark. But remember, Jesus chose this group. Out of anyone he could have chosen, why Judas? We know that, that Jesus knew all along that Judas was never going to trust in him. That Judas would be the one to betray him. So why would he make him a part of this team? Well, the simple answer is to fulfill prophecy. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that this was going to happen. Judas had to be on the team. But an answer that may require some more thinking could be to teach us to not assume. There's some important lessons that we can learn from Judas. Everyone who looks like a Christian, talks like a Christian, claims to be a Christian, isn't necessarily really a Christian. All the other 11 had no doubts about Judas. They never suspected him. But Jesus knew. We need to be discerning. Scripture tells us we even need to test ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. But Judas serves as a warning to not take following Jesus lightly. Test everything. Now, if we're asking why did Jesus choose Judas, we could also ask why did he choose any of these? None of them seem to have the qualities that we would assume would be necessary to carry on such an important mission. 
Why did Jesus choose any of them? Well, the Bible answers that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that, here's the answer why. So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing. You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now there should be no mistake that the world did not get turned upside down. The gospel has not spread so far and remained intact for so long because that group of men were such amazing leaders. That's not why. It's because God has done it. It's all God's doing. The gospel has spread. The gospel remains to this day because God is working. And God is working through imperfect people. What qualifies us? Those 12, they're no longer here. The baton has been passed. What qualifies us to carry on the mission that was given to those disciples? To be Christ's representatives and the proclaimers of the gospel. What qualifies us? Well, we are qualified because we're not qualified. Our only hope, our only boast, is Jesus. We're not qualified. We're not good enough to do this. Our hope is in Jesus. Our boast is in him. Him Him working through us, imperfect, unqualified people. And we see that in this very ordinary, very unqualified dream team of Jesus. Their only boast was in him. Our only boast will be the same.